Welcome to episode four of the Full Count podcast with Jack Curry and David Cohn. And David, we are entering the Yankee universe at this point. 1995, you're traded from the Blue Jays to the Yankees. It's another period in your life where the Yankees want you to be that so-called hired gun. The Yankees had talked to you when you were a free agent. That didn't work out, and you ended up going to Kansas City. What was it like to be back in New York and in a different borough this time? It was tremendous. I I was never more ready to, to be a Yankee or to come back to New York than I was at that point in time. I think the Blue Jays and Paul Beeston was the president of the Blue Jays did me a huge favor and knowing that I that I still considered New York home. I still had an apartment there. I still went back in the off season and he knew that's where I wanted to go and he made it happen. So uh you know, I give George Steinbrenner a lot of credit. I give Paul Beeston a lot of credit. The Blue Jays had fallen out of the race in 95. Uh, and, uh, you know, getting traded to the Yankees was just just felt like the right place at the right time. And uh, I, I couldn't have been more happy. The Yankees hadn't been to the postseason in a decade and a half since 1981. Don Mattingly had never played in a postseason. How much of, of what that team accomplished down the stretch to – to get a wild card, get the wild card, there was only one then, really involved a lot about Mattingly. It seems like a lot of the players from that team always talk about helping getting Mattingly across the uh, threshold to a postseason. Yeah, I think there was. I think there was a sense among that core group of players that um, they were marginalized from the strike in 94. They had a great team, a great record, and a lot of what-ifs were left on the table. I think they're... There was a sense of missing out on something then, and then there was also that sense of, you know, a, a real sense of urgency down the stretch in, in 95 that there wasn't a lot of margin for error. The team, you know, when I got there was under 500 or around 500. We had a lot of work to do, a lot of ground to make up, and, you know, there was a relentless relentless feeling to that team down the stretch. It seemed like we, we had to win every day, and we almost did win every day to get to the playoffs. I think... It was something along the lines of a 25-7 and seven finish, so you're absolutely right to, to even be able to qualify. You get in the division series against the Mariners. It's game five. You, you know where I'm going with this. You were not coming off the mound. You didn't even want to look at Buck Showalter in the dugout, and you, you have a chance to retire Doug Strange. You end up walking him. How often do you still think about that, and, and, and what was going on in that moment that you said I'm going splitter here this is this is the best pitch for that spot yeah I was uh, you know this came at the end of a really tough inning obviously I remember Kim Griffey Jr. hitting a monster home run off of me to make a four to three and then just really battling to get a couple more outs and a walk and a hit and another walk the bases are loaded there's two outs it's a three two count Doug Strange was a dead red fastball hitter um, you know Mike Stanley was the catcher he called a splitter I agreed I tried to throw it as hard as I could. I had one one more pitch left in my arm, and I just overthrew it and threw it in the dirt, and it was ball four, Doug Strange. I, I felt like collapsing on the mound. I think I almost did collapse on the mound uh, at that point. Now it's four to four. Um, I just felt like I let everybody down. I let New York down. I let Yankee fans down. I let my team down. I just took such responsibility and accountability for that that uh, it, it was crushing, absolutely crushing, even though – there was a young Mariano Rivera in the bullpen, and he relieved me and struck out Jay Buhner, I think, on three straight pitches, boom, 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 and made it look easy. And we were still in the game. It was still tied at that point. We actually took the lead in that game later on, and 
but but ended up losing in extra innings, and it was a, a crushing loss, a crushing flight back home from Seattle to New York uh, that night. Uh, you know, the, probably the the most devastating loss I've been a part of. You threw 147 pitches in that game. I should have uh, added that. That's obviously a pretty big mm-hmm. detail. Just shows how much you refused to come out of that game. You wanted to finish the deal, so to speak. You mentioned the flight couldn't lift your arm off the armrest on the plane, which was a harbinger of things to come because then you start having issues in spring training and you find out that you have an aneurysm under your right armpit. Those are some pretty rough words to hear for anyone, but for someone who has a career throwing a baseball, do you remember what your mindset was like when when you were going through all of that? Yeah, I just it was so confusing. I didn't really know what an aneurysm was. I, I know that I had circulation problems in my hand, and my fingernails were turning blue. So that led me to believe there was something wrong with my hand locally. Um, but come to find out, it was an aneurysm and up higher in, my, in the in the armpit area and an axillary artery that was throwing out blood clots down to my hand. So I remember when they it took them a couple of different angiograms. I went through the angiogram process once, which I wouldn't w- wish on anybody. That procedure is so difficult, injecting dye into your your arterial system to, to, to give you a look. And uh, it took them two tries, and uh, they finally found it. And I remember the look on the doctor's face. It was as if they were smiling when they told me, we finally found it, you have an aneurysm. And they were so happy that they found an aneurysm. And I was so devastated. Because I, that's the last thing I wanted to hear was, what does this mean? That means I'm on the DL. That means I can't pitch. That means what? Am I done? Will I ever pitch again? I mean, there's all these thoughts running through your mind of uncertainty at that point. So that was a real low point. And I can understand the doctors now. They were happy they found the aneurysm because that's their job. But that's not what I wanted to hear at that time. How do you fight that mental battle? This is all you know. At that point, I believe you were 33, where your career is hanging in the balance a little bit there. Things have to go right medically for you to come back and be able to be the pitcher you were. Yeah, and, you know, when you go through an angiogram for that many hours, I was kind of out of it. I was medicated. I didn't. I wasn't, I was in no state to really make any decisions about, you know, what's next. And there wasn't a, a general consensus on how to fix it. There wasn't a lot of basis for comparison uh, in terms of, oh, well, this pitcher went through it and he had this procedure. It was... There was different theories on what to do next, whether it should be a vein graft arterial bypass, whether it should be an arterial bypass, where they'd actually go in and use part of an artery from another part of your body and try to mesh that to the artery that was damaged, which is a much more invasive procedure. Um, The vein graft was much easier to do. Uh, There's extra veins in your body here and there. They took one from my upper thigh, left thigh, and used it to graft to the artery. So... You know, there was debate on whether that was the right procedure or not. So we really didn't know, and I was out of it. So uh, I really had to rely on the doctors to make the right call, and luckily I had a good group of doctors who made the right call. We know that you came back and had the seven-inning no-hitter against the Oakland A's. We, we've already discussed that on an earlier version of the podcast, but I want to jump ahead to the World Series. Game three, you guys are trailing the Braves two games to none and a lot of your teammates and even some Braves I, I interviewed Chipper Jones and Tom Glavin for this book and they talk about that being the turning point and, and you were a big reason why how motivated were you to you have to get game three because Chipper Jones says if you don't pitch well in that game he thinks that series is over he's right um, the Braves were I still think probably a better team uh, in 96 
Uh, we probably stole that from them. Yeah. But yes, I mean, it, it wasn't a masterpiece. You know, I gutted through six innings, had some jams, pitched out of some jams, got away with a few pitches here and there. Uh, it was a real gritty and gutty performance uh, under duress. I think, it, you know, in that type of situation, there's no margin for error. So you feel that responsibility as a pitcher, and you want to give your team a chance to score runs and get a lead if you can. And uh, you know, uh, thankfully, that's kind of what happened. And then we we just kind of held on for dear life and got a good relief effort too, because I only got through six innings. So our bullpen, which came through so many times uh, in the postseason runs that we had, really came through. Uh, they had to get nine outs, and they did. We've talked a lot, or we've written in this book, and people have talked a lot about your famous mound meeting with Tory. What was your relationship like with Joe Torrey? There seemed to be such a such a mutual trust there. There was really from the first time I met him. Um, you know, I I'd met him in passing when he was the manager of the Cardinals back in the '90s when I was a Met, but nothing, no real conversations, no real chance to interact. So uh, the first time we had a meeting, oh, I, I, it just clicked. You could just tell this guy's uh, He's going to be a player's manager. He treated everybody with such respect. There was a calmness and an easiness about Joe, and he just seemed to get it. And, uh, you know, it's hard to hard to explain that, you know, what, what that means. But Joe Torrey had it in spades. He just had such great skills, communication skills, the way he handled everybody, the way he treated everybody. He had our respect from day one and when he came in to be a manager. So the Yankees win in 96. You get knocked out of the playoffs in 97. 98 is is a year for the ages. The Yankees end up winning 125 games and, and another World Series. Was that the, the best team ever? We, we, we addressed that in the book, but do you feel like you're playing on one of the best teams ever? Well, absolutely. I think it's in that argument. Now, I, it's very hard to compare to the 27 Yankees or the 75 Reds or whoever you want to throw in there. There's some great teams in history. You know, my argument is it was the deepest team, 1 through 25. Uh, and I back that up because of our bullpen, how deep our bullpen was with Mariano Rivera at the end of the game, so reliable. Uh, Tim Raines, Daryl Strawberry, Homer Bush coming off the bench on that 98 team. It seemed like uh, it was such a balanced team, and the pieces fit so well together. A little bit of youth, a little bit of speed, some power, some big-time pitchers, and a, and a lockdown bullpen. I, I think 1 through 25 – I would put our 25-man roster up against anybody in history. If you're enjoying our podcast, please let us know by leaving a review on iTunes. We're very interested in hearing your feedback, so don't forget to do that. As part of each episode of the podcast, we're giving you a chance to win an autographed copy of our book, Full Count. You have to answer the trivia question I'm about to ask. You can answer it on Twitter by going to Yes Network and including the hashtag Full Count Podcast. This is another layup. I'm going to ask David about his perfect game uh, as soon as I read this trivia question. How many pitches did David throw in his perfect game? So that happened in 1999. I'm making it even easier for you. Send your answer once again to Yes Network on Twitter, but make sure you include the hashtag Full Count Podcast. So, David, perfection. No pitcher I guess or maybe you do think about that maybe every game you think about being perfect when you go out there but batters sometimes make sure that that goes away very quickly that day just absolute perfection do you uh do you still hear about that quite often from fans and friends and 20 years later now I yes I, I still hear about a lot uh, 
it makes me appreciate it that much more because people remember that signature moment and and it's more about they want to tell me their story where they were i was with my father we were listening we pulled over on the side of the road by the jersey shore and we listened to the ninth inning on the radio we had to pull over so we could concentrate uh story after story of some somebody like that that makes me realize that the whole yankee experience is so much more about individual performances it's about a a connection to to the generations a father and a son a mother and a daughter grandfather and a grandson Uh, those are the type of stories that i continue to hear on an ongoing basis that make me realize that it's so much bigger than just the game itself we have a chapter in the book where you and I sat down and watched the game, and you had not done that in two decades, which I, I thought was pretty cool that I got to share that with you. And I could see your your adrenaline within your answers increasing as the game got to the sixth inning, the seventh inning, and the eighth inning. Watching that back, was that a, uh, a surreal experience for you? Um, it can be, especially with you. I mean, um, it, was, it was something that... Um, you relive the emotions. They do come back, and you you do recall what you were feeling. And I, I still remember the incredible adrenaline rush I got walking out for the ninth inning after the so-called uh, you know uh, talk in the mirror that I had with myself that we cover in the book. Obviously, it was, it was a surreal moment. I didn't know how to act. I didn't know what to do. But I remember I used the expression that I could feel my hair growing. That's that's how intense the adrenaline rush was. Uh, you know, pins and needles. I mean, you really do feel it. I've never really felt anything like it. And that walk out for the ninth inning, the anticipation of everything, uh, the feeling of not wanting to lose it, don't blow it, along with the feeling of trying to be positive, of execution. You're fine. Just keep doing what you're doing as opposed to what if I blow it? You know, and all these fans have waited around all day. What if, you know... What if I let them down? You know, there's all sorts of crazy thoughts that run through your mind that, that you kind of relive when, when, when you, you watch it again. From the height of baseball perfection as a pitcher, in 2000, you, you struggle with your slider, and it ends up being the worst season of your career. What is it like to go from a guy who has this trusty pitch, and, and it's been there for you for your entire career, and then you struggle throughout that year, you clashed a little bit with Posada behind the plate. We cover that in the book. You talk about that season as being just such a grind and so frustrating. Very much. And yeah, that's probably one of the things that, that I really love about our book together is that that, um, that vulnerability gets covered here. You know, kind of take the mask down and be honest and, and show, uh, you know, some things that maybe you're not so proud of, but you own up to it and you admit it and you try to you try to throw it out there, and uh, that, I think that's that's what's uh, one of the great parts about this book. But that was a devastating year. I mean, it was, um, you know, the, the only thing that saved us in the end was that we still won the World Series championship. Mm-hmm. We beat the Mets, and I was able to get Mike Piazza out in the one at-bat I had in that World Series. So it kind of felt like, you know, that, you know, I still contributed to the cause a little bit by the end of the day. But going through that, that particular year, wow, that was a lost year. It was I doubted everything. You you lose your confidence. You um, you doubt everything you're doing. You try everything new. I remember I'm probably one of the least superstitious people that I that I've been around. At least I, at least in baseball, where everybody's got something, a lucky charm. I started wearing puka shells by the end of the year. I was started 
started looking. I was doing different acupuncture treatments. I was looking for searching for for something to help me. I would have done anything to to get out of that slump, and you know, it was just not to be. I just my skills diminished overnight, seemingly. Um, the wear and tear of all the post seasons finally caught up with me, and. You know, I just I just lost my stuff overnight. I, nowadays, they would say, well, I lost a significant spin rate on my slider or, you know, uh, my velocity is way down. The life of my pitches was were way down. And, uh, you know, that was something that was back then you didn't have as much information. So you still wanted to believe I'm OK. I can still do it. I'll get it back. I'll find it back. You know, every start was a battle to try to find it back. And it just never came for that reason, even though it wasn't in New York. How important was it that in 2001 you went back out and had a representative season? I know you try to come back with the Mets in 03, but 2001 is your last full season, and when you look at the way you pitched that season, uh, it was a commendable year. Yeah, that was more that was more of a normal regression, you know, where I, you know, it showed me that I wasn't as bad as I as I was the previous year, but it also showed me too, you know, I wasn't the dominant pitcher that I was even 2 years prior. So, it was very respectable. I definitely got some pride back. Uh, you know, I I was able to leave the game on my own terms at that point in time. Uh, and as you said, even though I never really got it out of my system, tried to come back a couple of years later, but at, you know, that year in Boston kind of uh, was a little bit of uh, gave me some redemption in my own mind. Another part of the book that that I really enjoy is you take us into the clubhouse and and, and not in a way where it's salacious, but you tell stories about a Derek Jeter or a story about a Mariano Rivera, and you were pretty much impressed with Jeter from day one and the way that he behaved as, as a youngster taking over as Yankee shortstop. Yeah, Derek Jeter to this day was the best, uh, you know, the old cliche of uh, don't get too high or don't get too low. You know, when things are going bad, don't get too low. Things are going great, don't get too high. Tomorrow's a new day. He was the best I've ever been around. And, you know, I call it a turn-the-page guy. Uh, he could go five for five the next day. He shows up early. It's the same routine. He's not even thinking about the five for five he had the day before. Or conversely, if he was 0 for five, he was ready for the next game. He was relentless in that regard, almost to the point of by the end of his career, I, I, I worried about him, about did you enjoy the ride enough? Because you were so relentless your whole career for 20 years. He was Mr. Turn the Page and Mr. Team and never talking about himself. It was always team first. And the responsibility and the accountability that he had his whole career, I hope he enjoyed the last few moments of his career. I hope he enjoys it now, you know, now that he's an owner. But that was the only thing I worried about Derek was that he was so relentless that I hope I hope he knows how many – how many people he impacted? How, 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 what his impact was on the franchise, the New York Yankees, the impact that he had? I hope, I hope he was able to enjoy that. I think that's very insightful because I'm pretty sure toward the end of his career, Jeter's dad said the same thing: try, try and make sure you, you enjoy the ride. And as you said, hopefully he did because he meant so much to so many people. Mariano Rivera, uh, the cut fastball. There was a period in time where he first had that, where you wondered if that was going to be enough. Can you just get by with that one pitch? We all wondered about it, and you could even um, could even go to the '98 World Series uh, when we played the Padres. Bruce Bochy was the manager, and he was pinch hitting right-handed batters for left-handed batters, and we'd never seen anything like it um, because Mariano's cut fastball was death on left-handed batters. He broke so many bats, and he commanded the ball to that side of the plate so well. 
that he really did, did need to evolve. And the notion that Mariano Rivera didn't evolve or change or make adjustments is just wrong because he had to and he did. And he became a master at both sides of the plate with that cut fastball. And then later in his career, incorporating a two-seam fastball off of that just to give different looks and different variations off of that cut fastball. And he had to change. He really did have to evolve or, or he wouldn't have had the success that he did. I know you don't have a vote. I do for the Baseball Hall of Fame. Do you think that everything is right in the world when Mariano Rivera is the first player to get 100% of the vote? Yeah, I, I think it's a great breakthrough, without a doubt. Uh, the whole notion that uh, we have to hold back a unanimous selection in case somebody better comes along or to keep a little margin for error in there uh, never made a lot of sense to me. If somebody deserves it, they deserve it. Um, you know, if Mariano is, is the guy, it's a, it's a great breakthrough because I think universally everybody agrees that you know, Mariano was a cut above uh, most everybody else. There are a wealth of Yankee stories in our book, Full Count, The Education of a Pitcher. You can get it at www.davidconebook.com. We have one more episode of our podcast coming up next, and we're going to talk about what do you do when your baseball career ends? David's going to answer that question. <laughs> 